podcast listeners. This is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. This episode is with Professor Henry Pasco from IE, or Instituto Empresa, in Madrid. Uh, he is a professor of international relations, and I met him uh, just through uh, some contacts through one of my professors at the, uh, the Instituto Internacional, where I was studying. And uh, of the content that I recorded in Spain, this is the one set of episodes which is not associated with Spanish political issues, but just on the basis of his expertise, I got around to uh, to looking at some of his work. It was really interesting, and it's on stuff that that you know I, I gather most of us don't ordinarily look at. But it's an interesting way to to analyze international affairs. Uh, so, what I did was I divided the 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 conversation that we had into two episodes, two distinct episodes. What we ordinarily do uh, with a lot of our episodes at the Common Thread Podcast is. We'll talk to a professor for an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 40 minutes we've done. I think we've done two hours. And then we'll say, all right, nobody's going to listen to a podcast that's that long in and of itself. And we'll break it up into meaningful segments of, of one conversation uh, so so they can stand alone as episodes that are related. This is not that. This is different. We, we talked about one bit of his work, and then we talked about another bit of his work. So what you're about to hear is a conversation on his work about foreign aid as an enforcement mechanism for international counterterrorism treaties. Now, to the listener who is not an international relations major, uh, this may sound uh, daunting. It may sound like it has no relevance, like it's not interesting. Uh, I, I caution you against that belief because this is actually a really fascinating subject when you think about it because it, it has to do with how the United States exerts power over other countries uh, through something that, at least to the public eye, uh, appears to be a generosity. Uh, one thing that's important to remember is that foreign aid, um, before anything else, is usually in the national security or in the commercial interest of the United States. And so this episode elucidates that very nicely and shows some of the strategies uh, about uh, how we uh, how we get compliance with international agreements, in this case specifically relating to terrorism, uh, through our uh, foreign aid and through the strings that come attached to that foreign aid. Uh, and it's actually uh, relevant in a case right now where we're talking about trying to pressure uh, Pakistan. But I think that's referenced in the episode. And if you look at uh, the New York Times from uh, what day is this? Mid-February, February 15th. Uh, there is uh, there is an update on what is referenced somewhere in the middle of the episode regarding to Pakistan. Uh, so with that, uh, I've spoken enough at this point. I will let the episode speak for itself. Uh, and then you can come back uh, for the second episode, which is going to be on uh, sanctions and international bargaining, another interesting subject, uh, because it, it, it posits a, uh, a counterintuitive theory about what makes sanctions effective. Uh, but this one is foreign aid uh, as a counterterrorism enforcement mechanism. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Your main point here is that there are UN conventions against terror, different forms of terror. And none of these UN conventions actually have enforcement mechanisms of their own. And so in the sort of bilateral relationship between what are called target states and what are haven states, which generally tend to be weaker states that, that play host to terrorism, um, the role of foreign aid, the transfer of foreign aid from the target states to the haven states acts as an informal enforcement mechanism. Is that a pretty good summary of, of the thesis? Yeah, that's a really good summary of the thesis, I think. Um, so I was really puzzled by these United Nations conventions, um, which hadn't gotten much 
attention in political science anyhow, especially because they had no formal enforcement mechanism, as you point out. Mm -hmm. So there's no sort of direct consequence to violating after you ratify. There's not even any sort of like delegated authority. So by that, I mean like a committee or something where, where you'll be kind of named and shamed for violating. It's just right. you sign and then nothing. Right. Um, but at the same time, states were, and especially as you point out, states that were being targeted by terrorism, such as the United States, um, seem to be putting a lot of effort into developing these conventions. So the big question was, was for me first, like why? Why they wanted to spend all that time and money doing that? And then, and then second, you know, do, do these conventions have any effect? And if so, why? Right. And, and my thesis is, as you point out, that these agreements set up really clear benchmarks for what ratifying states must do regarding terrorist attacks mm -hmm. by their nationals. So, for instance, the bombing convention mm -hmm. in 1997, I believe, requires that states investigate terrorist bombings and, and prosecute them which, for instance, Pakistan fails to do quite often. And, and the, the thesis is that when recipient states don't live up to these agreements, donor states can observe that directly and point to the agreement and say, hey, you're not doing X, Y, Z that you're supposed to. Mm -hmm. um, and then more credibly threaten to withdraw aid. So that's what I mean by like an informal enforcement mechanism. Right, it provides something verifiable and tangible to more or less um, threaten in the case that the Haven State isn't actually working on, on the issue. And that's, so that's, that's our general outline here and what we're working with on the foreign aid issue. So can we start, before we dig into that, on what the scholarship is around informal enforcement mechanisms broadly? I mean, when you were starting looking into this question, um, did you go through a series of candidates for the enforcement mechanism? Did you say, okay, foreign aid could be the primary candidate that, that acts as the enforcement mechanism here? Um, can you just draw the picture of informal enforcement mechanisms? Yeah, so, so in the late 90s, there were some influential articles on informal enforcement. Um, and, and some of this was about using foreign aid as, as an enforcement mechanism. Um, so in particular, um, foreign aid as a means of conditionality. So by that I mean you get aid if you meet certain conditions, if you don't, it gets withdrawn. So, so that sort of informal enforcement was out there, but it wasn't so directly connected to international institutions, um, at least in the way I, I sort of make the con connection here. Um, and so I think that's sort of one of the innovations of, of right. the project is to, to make the connection between this literature on foreign aid and what people call like informal enforcement yeah. directly to a set of United Nations conventions. So, so it functions through the conditionality. Was this, I mean, I think we probably most often think of the connection between foreign aid and conditionality in terms of humanitarian rather than terrorist issues. Is that where the bulk of this research and the idea of informal enforcement was coming from in the 80s and 90s papers you're referencing? Yeah, uh, I, I would say so. So the interest in foreign aid as a counterterrorism tool, mm -hmm. I think really um, was, was developed in the early 2000s. Um, so, you know, military intervention is, is very costly. Often it doesn't seem to work too well. And so policymakers really have started to think about like, what else can we do? One idea is to give foreign aid. Problem there is it's, it's really unclear whether foreign aid suppresses terrorism or provides more resources potentially uh, for, for terrorist groups to seize and loot. Right. Um, 
And so that's a, that's a pretty active area of research where some people argue that foreign aid can, can be used either to improve conditions in a state so less people turn toward terrorism or to sort of more directly build the coercive capacity of the state, um, which is great. And, and, and I, th I think both of those avenues make sense. One of the big problems you run into, though, is, is misappropriation of aid. Mm -hmm. So often, for instance, in a lot of states in Africa, you know, uh, foreign aid w was being used to buy nice jets for, for heads of state. Right. Or in <clears throat> Pakistan, a big issue has been, uh, especially in terms for like counterterrorism aid, Pakistan gets lots of counterterrorism aid from, from the U.S. Uh, that ends up being used to buy missiles, which aren't useful for counterterrorism, but they are useful for, for arming against their, their rival, India. Right. And so these sort of problems, it's really hard to evaluate how much of your counterterrorism aid is actually going to the things you'd like it to go to, because first, the, the, you, know, first you give it to the leader of a state, and they decide what to do with it. And, and it can be really hard to tell when things are getting misappropriated, um, you know, the cases I, I mentioned are kind of exceptions to the rule. Usually right. you just give the money and, and sort of cross your fingers. Yeah, so, so that's, that leaves us a good place to, to dig into exactly what you're talking about. So with these UN conventions, which are, which are multilateral conventions, um, they set these benchmarks. And what you're saying is that that allows for the target state, the target states who are often, uh, more often than not, the crafters of some of these conventions, to create certain benchmarks. And the reason that those are necessary is because of how difficult it is to assess whether or not a haven state is actually putting effort in, putting dollars in to combating terrorism. Can you talk about some of the problems with acquiring information uh, in that realm? And then, and then also how the conventions um, worked as a sort of screening mechanism to look at what is the commitment of the recipient state to combating terrorism uh, within their within their uh, borders? Absolutely, yeah. So, so it it's really hard with terrorism, especially I think. So first off, what is a terrorist attack? Right. Um, that's not commonly agreed before these conventions. So mm -hmm. one thing these conventions do that that I think was really helpful is they clearly define certain acts as as being terrorist. So for instance. Um, kidnappings of foreigners uh, th that was expressly outlawed in the, in the 70s by these conventions and um, and so that particular convention made it where you had to prosecute those sort of acts even if um, even in the context of like a peace deal so there's big worries in Colombia in the 70s that foreign contractors who'd been kidnapped by the FARC would remain in captivity after a peace deal with the FARC. And so, so for instance, the convention really clearly made it, um, really clear, clearly outlined that that would be against international law after Columbia ratified. Um, and so that's one area, just, just kind of clearly defining like what a terrorist attack is. The other is to clearly define what a state's responsibilities are to keep their nationals from engaging in terrorism. And so this prevention area, I think, is really important. So, for instance, marking plastic explosives was a big one. Um, another is the, the financial conventions are really important here. So regulating banks. Um, so this was a recent push, like 2005, relatively recent, that, that um, really made it clear that 
states will be held responsible if their banking systems are not regulated to prevent things like money laundering. Right. So, so one of the things that's happening here in terms of transparency is it, it's laying out definitions, more or less. And one of the things that you say uh, that you say within the papers that reporting is is non-essential because it's so uh, it's so variable within different terrorist states in terms of the ability for journalists to report, the, the accuracy of the press uh, in a given state. Can you talk about why these benchmarks are more effective than relying on the reporting coming out of a given state? Yeah, so there I mostly meant like self-reporting by the states, okay, but, okay. but I think it works for journalism as well. And okay. I think, so there's a couple of issues there. So with self-reporting, of course, there's an incentive to misrepresent. So right. you're doing more than, than you actually are. And so I think the, the major innovation of, of these benchmarks set up by the conventions is that they're directly observable. Right. You can see whether banks are being regulated. You can see whether uh, perpetrators of a terrorist bombing are prosecuted mm -hmm. after the bombing, yeah. um, or whether there's a good faith investigation to even find the perpetrators. Right. Um, and so I think, I think there's real benefit into these things being directly observable in contrast to some other international institutions that rely on self-reporting. So for instance, um, some of the environmental conventions uh, relied on self-reporting. Um, so for instance, there's some conventions requiring tankers to have certain kind of equipment so they don't leak oil out, right. out into the ocean. And so there were two types of conventions. The first is relied on self-reporting. Right. Not very effective at all. The other required they install a piece of equipment that you could just directly observe, and right. required the states not allow, uh, like harborage, I guess is the word, uh, to to oil tankers that didn't have the equipment, mm -hmm. since they could directly observe it. That was way more effective. Right. One more question on the on the information sort of the information environment aspect um, before we we go back to. Um, some of the notions of foreign aid itself is that what from the perspective of the ratifying state from the perspective of the haven state which is ratifying the convention what is their incentive so the incentives are, are twofold i think the the first major incentive is that states that ratify get almost twice as much foreign aid it's a clear signal to donor states that, that there's going to make a good faith effort toward counterterrorism. So then those states get more counterterrorism aid. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that kind of direct financial incentive. Um, the other is, is that I think a lot of these states really do want to prevent terrorism, suppress mm -hmm. terrorism in, in their territory because uh, there's real costs associated with that. Right. Uh, and sometimes they need, you know, for instance, the political cover to do that um, yeah. or the threat of a foreign power withdrawing the aid if it's not used in a certain way to allocate the aid toward counterterrorism rather than right. paying, um, you know, like political allies who they need to buy gifts for uh, right. in order to stay in power. I think a lot of times they can use these agreements as essentially an excuse to, to use the, the money on, on counterterrorism. An, an internal justification, right? To, yeah, to so I don't, I don't get into this in the paper so yeah. much, but it's an idea I've been, I've been thinking about. It's essentially a kind of a political cover explanation for yeah. what are often fairly unpopular counterterrorism um, policies right. domestically. Are there, um, I, I know this is probably something you're just sort of wading into, are there examples um, of countries that might have, uh, for instance, this sort of incentive? Like if you're looking at um, uh, 
the relation between the Afghan government and the Taliban or, or other states like that where there are sort of very powerful terrorist networks that, uh, that sort of uh, accrue a lot of political, uh, political authority in weak states. Um, is that the place where you're most likely to see that effect? Yeah, so this is an issue in, in, in Pakistan and yeah. a lot of the sort of northwest areas. It's yeah. politically very unpopular to, to pursue counterterrorism measures there too aggressively. Right. Um, and, and because there's real costs involved with, with these counterterrorism measures. I mean, they're not perfect by right. any means. Another area you see this, I think is in Colombia. Um, so again, with the peace process with the FARC, um, I think some people saw that pursuing sort of counterterrorism too stringently would, would get in the way of a peace process. And so right. people who were in favor of the peace process um, said, you know, we shouldn't worry about these people who've been kidnapped. These foreigners have been kidnapped. They shouldn't have been doing shady stuff in the jungle anyway. Right. Um, we just need peace, and we need it 10 years ago. Right. And so you see a lot of dialogue like this in the 1980s. I think these agreements helped, um, and especially the foreign aid associated with the agreements, mm -hmm. helped um, make, make uh, pursuing... Uh, perpetrators of, of terrorist kidnappings um, more popular there, right? But because people could see the effects, they could see the new roads and new right. schools. Um, when we're talking about haven states and, and sort of all the incentives that you lay out here, is there a difference between haven states that sort of suffer the effects of the terrorism uh, internally or domestically more so than in states like uh, like Pakistan or like Afghanistan, let's say, where they're sort of seen as launching pads for terrorism conducted transnationally against target states. So, for example, in, in the Colombia case, it's not to say that there are no effects outside of its uh, outside of its boundaries, but the effects of kidnappings could have political repercussions inside Colombia. Absolutely. I mean, I think some role of these agreements is to make those. What, what I guess we call in political science, these negative externalities, these yes. costs that are faced by other states rather than domestically, um, to impose them right back onto Pakistan by saying, you know, we're going to cancel billions of dollars of aid, which the U.S. recently did, because right. Pakistan wasn't living up to some of the, the things in these agreements. Right. Um, so I think some of that's there. I, I do think there's a big difference between what we might call just purely domestic terrorism right. and transnational terrorism. So right. in my work, I really focus on transnational terrorism. Right. By that, I mean the perpetrator of the terrorist act and victim are of different nationalities. Right. Um, so to go back to the notion of, of benchmarks. So we talked about how these agreements increase transparency, create definitions, and, and aid enforcement in that way for the, the targeted states. Um, in terms of these benchmarks um, and where the, the sort of donating states want the money to go, they want the state to build capacity um, to combat terrorism. Can you define building capacity and to what extent some of these donor states want, this, want the receiving states, the recipient states, to build short-term capacity, so like you were talking about coercive capacity to stop terrorism right now, versus long-run capacity, which might be increasing social services and um, building a stronger society um, that might, in the future or over the next couple of decades, prevent terrorism. 
Yeah, so I think, I think you, you, you hit upon a really important issue here. And so in the paper, I make an argument that there's these two avenues through aid, which you lay out well. One's kind of direct coercive capacity, and the other's sort of building civil society, and, and especially building um, kind of judicial systems to be able to prosecute, and if not prosecute, extradite um, terrorists. So I think there's a trade-off here. It's something I haven't explored so much. I do kind of separate aid out into military aid, counterterrorism aid, more humanitarian aid, mm -hmm. and I find generally the same effect um, overall for each. That you know, states that ratify get more aid, and the aid's more effective at reducing terrorist attacks. But I think there's much more work to be done there about you know to the extent we can how we should design these projects uh, to to be more effective. In, in assessing you know, where, this, uh, where this aid is going, if we go back to the notion of informal enforcement mechanisms just in a general sense and, uh, and how they operate, do the, the donor states really consciously tie the level of aid um, to the enforcement? So for instance, um, you mentioned a couple cases. For example, um, in 2004, the Philippines um, ratified the convention to suppress terror uh, and they subsequently received an increase of 12 million dollars uh, in their foreign aid is that is that conscious is that almost a quid pro quo or is that sort of happening as the result of policymakers in the US reassessing the overall situation of the Philippines relative to the entire body the entire corpus of international terrorism conventions so this is a really good question. It's something I'm exploring now. Um, so you especially look at kind of congressional debates about uh, how much aid to give the Philippines, for instance, or whether to cancel aid to Pakistan. Um, and I think, I think it's the latter. It's an overall package where these agreements and whether states live up to them are kind of one important element. Mm -hmm. I think there's other things that go into it, especially things like leadership turnover, so, for instance, it seems like states get more aid uh, after leadership turnover, especially right. if the new leader is more favorable to the U.S. Right. So there's all these kind of other strategic reasons why states get aid that, that I try to control for to the point I can. Um, and after doing that, I still find an effect of the agreements. The effect of the agreements. Um, so... Okay, real quick in terms of, all right, we're going to push off for just a second how you assess that, but I do want to ask, is there a discrepancy? You talked about leadership turnover. Is there a discrepancy between democracies and other states which are not democracies in terms of if they ratify the agreement, what their incentive is to... You know, that's a good idea. I have not explored that. Okay. I'm not certain. Okay. And then in terms of how you actually assess it, um, you're, you're not just... In some sense, you're verifying your count by looking at the proportion of the corpus of counterterrorism conventions that they've um, that they've ratified. You're looking at just like a, a regular count of how many mm -hmm. they've ratified, but the primary. But you're using that to verify the primary mechanism, which is what you call treaty capital. Can you define what treaty capital is, uh, more or less? If, am yeah, I so right this in is... saying? Oh, go ahead. Oh, please go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So this is just a measure of how many. Uh, agreements have been ratified relative yeah. to how many are available. Okay. Um, and so, from a, I guess, kind of statistical perspective, you get in all kinds of weird issues that the number of agreements is going up right. uh, over time. And so, if you just use a count, perhaps you'll find an association with anything else that goes up over time. So, okay. like world GDP, for instance. Right. Um, and so, the treaty capital is a way of, of sort of addressing that issue. 
Um, it's not it's not perfect. It's essentially, the number you've ratified relative to the uh, worldwide average. Right. And so, you know, the, my my approach here has been to just take a, a bunch of different possible measures. So, for instance, treaty capital proportion ratified of those available, a simple count, right. and then I also split it out between each agreement. Okay. Um, yeah. Is, is there, a, if, if we sort of just step away from the, the social science context yep. of it for a minute and just look at um, what the incentives are on any given treaty, it, would it be true that when you're counting there's just an inherent problem because different states assess different treaties differently? So like they weight the importance of one treaty over another. So for instance, um, in a hypothetical situation where there's um, preventing preventing terrorists from acquiring uh, nuclear materials treaty, um, which I'm sure there's something like that. Yep. But if we're talking about that, the U.S. might weigh, weight the value of Pakistan ratifying that over a, a state like Somalia, which just doesn't, doesn't have a nuclear program, for instance. Um, so can you talk about maybe just in a general sense the qualitative differences in treaties and why it might break down to be counting treaties? Yeah, so, so my approach here, uh, because I agree, I think, I think this is an issue, has been to just look at each treaty individually as well. Right. And so, for instance, I think the most important ones of the past maybe two decades have been the bombing treaty and the terrorist financing treaty. Right. The financing one was actually pretty invasive, um, called for really a restructuring of how international finance worked. So, you know, okay. if you do, since you've been living in Spain, you've, you've probably yeah. had to do this, you know, if you have to put in like a SWIFT number yeah. and then your transfer takes a few days. Right. Well, that's because of, of that sort of regulation. Uh -huh. um, so they're kind of checking about where you're sending the money and is it associated with any known terrorist group. Right. Um, and so that adds bureaucracy, uh, but it's also been quite effective. So, so of the conventions, I find that one's had the biggest effect. Okay. Um, other conventions, so like, for instance, there's uh, quite a few maritime conventions about right. like attacks on oil derricks. Right. Those, I mean, they might be important in certain areas, but their general importance, like for instance, we don't care if Pakistan signs that they don't have any oil derricks. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think there's variation here. Um, one thing I'll say is is kind of working on a larger book project, uh, yeah. which which explores these issues a little more. Right. Yeah. Um, so so let me ask then, uh, just in terms of if you if you were to sort of uh, extrapolate some of your findings in this area, both the qualitative uh, stuff you've looked at, I mean, just by actually like reading and assessing mm -hmm. the conventions. Um, and then also the, the social science aspect of it, the statistics that you've done on the basis of all this. In terms of policy, um, how can this work guide, uh, guide our policy on you know, uh, international terrorism conventions? I mean, are these conventions on the whole um, generally effective with, with the sort of enforcement mechanism of foreign aid? Is there a way they can be more effective? And is there a way we can use our foreign aid more effectively? Yeah, so foreign aid suffered big cuts recently, right. um, and I think that is dangerous. I mean, so for me as a social scientist, it'll be interesting to see what happens right. when, when, when those cuts really start to take effect over the next couple of years, but, but my prior, my guess would be that, that it, it won't be so good. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because so so of the two options, you know, foreign aid or military action. Right. Military action, 
often, so research shows that often terrorists will try to provoke uh, states into military action. Right. It actually kind of plays into their plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I'm a little nervous about the future, I'd say. I mean, so also, so it's kind of a double whammy, right? Because so foreign aid's being cut, but also U.S. involvement in international institutions is also being cut. Right. Um, and so that would indicate that the remaining foreign aid that we are still spending won't be as effective if we're not as integrated into this international regime. Right. On that note, so one, I guess, one maybe more positive thing I would say is that, um, so there's a real need, I think, for a general kind of comprehensive convention on transnational terrorism. This has been on the table for about 14 years. It's politically hard to, to get through. Mm-hmm. Just in general, international cooperation is hard in this issue right. area. Um, there's a lot of contention about like how to define terrorism in a general sense. And so that's why this piecemeal approach has been taken. Um, but anyway, I guess my big kind of recommendation would be for, for more of a push at the international level for a general convention on transnational terrorism. Right. Does the, does the no, notion of foreign aid working as an enforcement mechanism, um, at least in the, in the history of these agreements, actually act to help build consensus? Because, for instance, it might be harder to build consensus if you have to actually agree upon an enforcement mechanism within a treaty. Yeah. If you're able to sort of outsource the enforcement to bilateral foreign aid um, aid levels, then you're really able to help build consensus. Has that been one of the effects of this? Yeah, so I would be very pessimistic about getting a transnational terrorism convention in the UN with a formal enforcement mechanism. Right. I think the political will is just not there. Right. And so this informal uh, means has, one, shielded a lot of states from enforcement who would otherwise worry about it. So states that don't receive aid don't have to worry about whether they ratify or not. Um, and, you know, so for like states like the US, right. if they were going to be beholden to some external enforcement mechanism, if they ratified a convention on terrorism, um, it would be wildly unpopular in the US. Right. Um, and and it, so, sorry, I just wanted yeah. to say, it, might, it actually might counteract the effect that you sort of alluded to earlier of these, uh, effect, these agreements being used as political cover. It might mitigate the, the very effect um, of, of the agreements or of yeah. the funding. Yeah, because so, so compare that to a state that, you know, 14% of their GDP or so, you know, a significant portion of their GDP is foreign aid. Mm-hmm. Then you have some political cover right. and, and can really induce states to, to change policy in a way that, that you can't for um, states that aren't beholden to this informal enforcement mechanism. Right. And so for things like, like transnational terrorism, where the vast majority of perpetrators come from states that receive quite a lot of foreign aid, um, I, think, I think the foreign aid mechanism, while not perfect means of enforcement, has, has really improved things over the past few decades. Right. Now, I may be speaking out of my depth of knowledge here, but um, what I think is true is that a lot of European states um, spend a much higher proportion of their GDP on foreign aid relative to the U.S. Is that correct? I believe so, yeah. Okay, so... In nominal terms, the U.S. is, is 
is the largest. Far and above, but yeah. yes. In terms of proportion of GDP. So in that case, how do all of the effects that you're talking about in terms of the marginal effect of spending dollars on foreign aid versus spending dollars on potential military action? Because um, one of the things that you note is that um, from the point of view of the home state, when they receive these do dollars, when they ratify the convention, and then we get to the stage where there's conditionality, sometimes just to hedge against the notion of the money being pulled away, they actually will uh, increase their capacities, right? So there is actually some effectiveness. Mm -hmm. It's not just a signifying, it's not just a signifying thing. And so because of that, you say in a general sense, spending dollars on foreign aid is uh, with, uh, on a state that is ratified is marginally more effective. Does that vary between a country like the United States, which largely shapes these agreements by having such an outsized voice in these international institutions, versus a smaller country, maybe a European country, which does donate a lot of its money to foreign aid, but doesn't have as big of a voice in shaping these conventions? Yeah, so, so definitely with this, the more money you're giving in foreign aid, just in absolute dollars, yeah. um, I think it's where the effect is. So, okay. you know, as a haven state, you don't care as much about like the proportion of GDP right, of, right. of you the person giving dollars, it. Yeah. yeah, and so so from that kind of like maybe a little bit too much pragmatic point of view, I would think that that haven states would, would care more about nominal dollars. And this is why I think the US is a central player here. Right. Okay. So this this whole this whole idea of foreign aid acting as enforcement an enforcement mechanism is very reliant upon the big states with the big voices with the large absolute number uh, the absolute dollars of GDP uh, sorry absolute dollars in foreign aid. podcast listeners this is kobe again i just wanted to say thank you to professor pesco for joining us for this discussion uh, and just a reminder you can look to another episode that we recorded with him which is on um, sanctions and international bargaining and it posits a counterintuitive theory about the way that sanctions work and sanctions are made effective uh, and then we look at all sorts of diff different situations from uh, colombia and farc to um, uh, iran to North Korea uh, and some of the power dynamics that occur uh, when we place sanctions on countries that are behaving in ways uh, contrary to, to what we want in our interest in the United States and, and to what the international community wants. So uh, please go check out that episode uh, and everything in our archive at ucommonthread.com. Thank you.